believe we're on. Okay. We are going to continue our study in Greatest Questions of the Old Testament today. And I am doing Lesson 13 in this book. If you want to open your books, it's on page 75. On page 75. Is there anyone that does not have a book? I think I have a few left over here. Anybody need a book? There you go. Anybody else? All right, down to the last one. Okay. If you noticed under course number 13 there, this one, the question is, am I in the place of God? This is found in Genesis 50, verse 19. This uh, goes along with the story of Joseph. Matter of fact, if you've noticed the last uh, three lessons, and now this is lesson number four, all have to do with the life of Joseph. That ought to tell us something. You know, Joseph's a big character in the Bible with a lot of importance there. And four lessons now have been associated with his life and what happened in that situation. Uh, Again, Genesis 50, 19, if you read that, it says, And Joseph said to them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Now, you don't really get that unless you get the context behind it. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to read a little bit. If you're turning your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 49. To get the context of this, we're going to start reading in verse uh, 28. Genesis 49, 28. And it's going to be a little lengthy reading. I'll break up a little bit hopefully here. But uh, I really think we need to get the context of what's going on. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is it that their father spake unto them and blessed them every one according to his blessing. He blessed them. And he charged them and said unto them, and to be gathered unto my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field uh, of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. He was at the end of his life. He had certain things he wanted done. He was going to be gathered to his people and notice he wanted to be buried where his people were buried. And, uh, of course, all those were buried in the cave. He buried Leah there. You know, I had a thought when I read that. I'd, I'd forgotten, and I know I'd read it before. Where did he bury Rachel? That was the love of his life, right? I'm thinking, well, I had to look that up and read it. You know, she died in childbirth. And so he had to bury her close to Bethlehem. They were on the road then. And so he couldn't bury her in that cave. 
So he buried her on the way to Bethlehem and put up a pillar over her, her uh, grave at that time. But anyway, he, he wanted to be buried in that cave. Now go to uh, chapter 50. And Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, and the physicians embalmed Israel. And 40 days were fulfilled for him, for so are fulfilled the days of those that are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him threescore and ten days. And when the days of the mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die in my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan. There shalt thou bury me. Now therefore let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. And Pharaoh said, Go up, and bury thy father, according as he had made thee swear. And Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And all the house of Joseph and his brethren and his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up uh, with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan, and there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Wherefore, the name of it would be called Abel-Mizram, which is beyond Jordan. And his sons did unto him according as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for possession of a burying place of Ephraim the Hittite before Mamre. And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and they all went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will preadventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we had done unto him. Now I'm going to stop right there a minute. Think about everything that just happened. Uh, Joseph's father died. They embalmed him, spent 40 days in Egypt doing that. Then they traveled, spent another week uh, mourning him. And did you notice uh, who all went up with him? First of all, Joseph had servants. He commanded to embalm him. And then as they went up, uh, of course, everybody went. They left their little ones. But I want to zero in on and went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of the house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. That's some pretty powerful people that went with him. Now his brothers saw that. They already knew that Joseph was very powerful in the land of Egypt. But can you imagine what they witnessed and as they traveled with all those powerful people and with Joseph and the influence he had as a political person in Egypt? And then they got their course and, and they buried him. And when they got back, they're going, wow, everything just happened to us and all the power we saw, he can do anything to us he wants to. He could have. He was in that type of position, wasn't he? 
He was in a very high political position. He had the power to do whatever he wanted to do with them, and they knew that. And of course, they were thinking about what they had done to him in years past. It had been years ago, but they hadn't forgotten that. They were thinking about that. Genesis 15, verse 16, 50, verse 16. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Joseph had that kind of heart, didn't he? He knew what they were thinking. He knew they were saying, boy, he's fixing to take it out on us. He didn't have that kind of heart. That saddened him that they even thought like that. And then he goes on to say, and his brethren also went in and fell down before his face, and they said, behold, we be thy servants. And then that's when Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? What a question. Am I in the place of God? Of God. Does man put him place there? His, does man put himself in the place of God? Oh yeah. In many occasions, man does that. We're going to study some of those in this lesson, how man uh, can put himself in the place of God. Now look at verse uh, look at page 13. What's on the screen up here? We may or may not get to today. The first part of the lesson's here, and we're going to zero in on what's uh in the book here. That first paragraph that, uh, that Brother Brownlow put together about what is said here, look at what he said below where it says Genesis 49, uh, 33 through 50, 18. And if their places had been reversed, in other words, if they had been Joseph, they might have well taken it out on him if he had done something. If their places had been reversed, Perhaps they would have recompensed evil for evil. They might have done it that way. You know, and notice that little phrase there, a uh, little before, uh, down below that. Now the brothers judge Joseph by themselves. Many make that mistake. They were judging Joseph based on what, if they had his power and influence, what they might have done. And they thought, that's what's going to happen to us. But Joseph was not them. He didn't react as they would have reacted. But they didn't think like that, did they? They were judging him by themselves. You ever made that mistake? I have. I've made that mistake. You know, you look at somebody and you think, well, this is what I would do. And you think that's what they're going to do. And they don't. They do something totally different. They're not like you. You know, people respond differently in different situations. But yet, what we usually do is think about how we would handle it. And we think, well, maybe that's how they're going to handle it. Well, that's what his brothers did. You know, maybe this is how we would have handled it. And that may be what uh, they would have done. And notice that little poem or whatever you want to call it uh, he puts in there. I thought that was pretty, pretty insightful. He that commits a fault shall quickly find the pressing guilt lie heavy on his mind. You think their brothers are going through that? Oh, I think they did for years. And especially after the father died. 
Though bribes or favors still assert his cause, pronounce him guiltless and elude the laws. You may get away with it. You may bribe somebody, the law might not get you, but you still have that guilt within yourself. None quits himself, his own impartial thought, will damn and conscience will record the fault. Then uh, this first the wicked feels. In other words, people that do wicked things, including Joseph's brothers, they might have gotten away with it. People today may do wicked things and get away with it. The law may not get them. But you know, that's still in their mind, isn't it? It's still on their conscience. They know what they've done. And they've got to live with that. And I, I think that's what it's saying here. But a lot of that was going on in their mind when, this, when, uh, when all of this had taken place and the funeral had taken place. And then he answers like that. Now, look at point two when he says, am I in the place of God? Uh, the story of Joseph is just an amazing story. If you think of what all goes on in that story, the only thing miraculous, and my wife and I were having this discussion, if you consider it miraculous, and I do, was the dreams that Joseph was given the ability to interpret. Now, other than those dreams... Well, there are other miraculous things going on. I can't recall any. You know, his father showed him favoritism and the brothers were angry. They sold him into slavery. He becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. Nothing miraculous about that. It just happened. He happened to buy him. But what is amazing about Joseph, what did he do as a slave? He was faithful to God. He was. And what happened because of that? He rose to about the highest level you can get in a slave, didn't he? He was over all of Potiphar's house, over everything. And then Potiphar's wife wanted to do something. Joseph said, no, I can't do. He did the right thing there, okay? Did he suffer consequences for doing the right thing there? Where'd he end up? In prison, didn't he? In prison. What happened to him in prison? He did the right thing. And then what happened to him in prison because he did the right thing? He rose to the highest level you could in the prison, didn't he? He got put over everything in the prison. And he could still continue to obey God and do the right thing. And God continued to elevate him. And the same thing happened, of course, when he uh, interpreted uh, Pharaoh's dreams. He did the right thing and, all, and God continued to elevate him. All of that shows amazingly, I think, the providence of God in Joseph's life through all those situations. But that providence was uh, based on his reaction to his circumstances, right? He reacted in the right way. He followed God in every one of those circumstances that were not good circumstances. They were bad circumstances. They were bad situations to be put in. Could he have reacted another way and said, woe was me? I didn't do anything to get here. What am I doing in this pit? Why am I sold into slavery? All those things he could have done. He could have reacted in a different way and different consequences would have happened because of that. We have the same choices, don't we? We're not guaranteed everything in our life is going to be good, are we? Matter of fact, if you look down, uh, Paul is given this example. He had all sorts of bad things happen to him. Philippians 
And he said, These things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He was looking at the things, beatings, and different things he had done, had been in jail. But he said, Oh, that happened to me, but that helped the gospel. I was able to preach the gospel better and more and have greater opportunities because of all of the stuff that happened to me. Look in your Bibles. Uh, turn to Romans 8.28. Romans 8, 28. You know this probably by heart. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to His purpose. Now, notice that that verse did not say, If, you're, if you love God, everything good is going to happen. It didn't say that. It said, We know that all things work together for good. Uh, I would, you got all sorts of people that write about that. I looked up uh, Brother James Burton Kaufman has commentary on this. And I just want to read a few things he said about that. Okay? Romans 8.28. All things. He said this includes suffering, sorrows, infirmities, everything else of a discouraging and calamitous nature which might befall God's child on earth. You mean that verse means that you're not going to not have to deal with all the bad things in this life because you're a Christian? No, doesn't mean that. It means you're still going to have those things happen to you. But it does say they work together for good. Now, what kind of good is it talking about? Look at the rest of it. For good to them that love God. Okay, if you're a lover of God, Things are going to work, but that's not the only qualification it gives. To them who are called according to his purpose. You know, it tells us if we love God, we'll keep what? His commandments, right? If we love God, we'll keep his commandments. Well, if you love God and you keep his commandments, then you're going to become a Christian. You're going to be called according to that purpose. The gospel calls all men, but all men don't answer that gospel call. Some do. If you're called by the gospel as we all are. But if you answer that and you become a Christian, you become a member of the church, then you're called according to his purpose. Now, does that mean if you're a member of the church that just good things are going to happen to you? No. What it means is if you're a member of the church and now you have eternal life, your inner man, not this outer man, this fleshly man, your inner man is looking forward to eternal life there's nothing in this world, nothing in this earthly habitation you're going through that's ever going to deter you from that eternal life. Matter of fact, if you handle it as a Christian should, then those things can lead you towards that eternal life. Your reaction to those circumstances, like Joseph's reaction to his circumstances, can lead you to be a better person and a better Christian and a better influence and you can have a much greater hope in your hope for heaven. Two or three things he put in here too. Uh, this one, I don't know who wrote this one, but it's a little poem he had in here. Some ships sail east, some ships sail west by the self-same winds that blow. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that determines the way they go. That's that old phrase, and I know you've heard it before. Things that happen in life, 
They'll make you bitter or they'll make you better. Well, that determines about your disposition, doesn't it? That determines how you handle it as a Christian. If it's going to make you bitter or better, it, you know, adversity is going to come. It's just going to happen to everybody on this earth. It depends on your reaction to it about uh, what, it, uh, what happens in your growth with God. Um, the reaction of the child of God or, uh, or his response to the ills of mortal life must be one of patience, submission, humility, prayer, love, hope, and faith. Even adversity of the uh, severest kind must be made to yield its precious fruit in the heart of a Christian. It has been proved again and again by Christians that prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Adversity is the blessing of the new. How can you say adversity is the blessing of the new? Well, if adversity can make you a better person and a Christian that's closer to God, and thus you have more of a hope of a home in heaven, then that's a blessing, isn't it? So those things, and again, Joseph said, am I in the place of God? He understood all the things that had happened to him, that his brothers had meant it for evil, but he understood, he said, you know, God meant for me to keep a lot of people alive. And he did. You know, he, he was over all of Egypt when that famine happened. And not only did he keep the Egyptians alive, but his own brethren. And all. He kept a lot of people alive. So God meant that for good, and Joseph used it like that and took uh, God's providence uh, uh, for what it was. And uh, the, uh, William Cowper, I'm not sure who he is. My oldest son might know, but I'm not sure. But he wrote this. God moves in mysterious way his wonders to perform. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. In other words, those bad things that happen in life, they don't taste good, do they? they, they they're bad. But it can blossom into eternal life for us and in our closeness towards God. Yes? Yes. Article B is a guarantee. If we remain faithful to God, He will work it out for us. For yeah, good. He will. There's and again, that, that qualifier is remain faithful to God, right? Mm-hmm. That's our reaction to the whole thing. And if we and do that, for doing so. exactly, exactly, it is. Okay. Any other questions or comments to this point? I've been doing most all the talking. All right, uh, let's see if I've gone ahead from anything. Uh, Genesis uh, 50, 21, uh, it says, to return good for evil down at the bottom of the page, only a big person can do this. Is that, now, you know, there are several things in the Bible that are hard sayings, if you will, and that's one of them. Return good for evil. Have you ever had anybody, and I know we've all had accidentally evil things happen to us. Those are kind of easy to overlook and forgive, okay? Have you had anybody on purpose try to do you evil, do bad things to you, go behind your back, take you down, all those kinds? Those things are hard to overlook. And those things are hard to return good for. As he said, it takes a very big person. That's what happened to Joseph. 
His brothers meant him evil. They did it to him. Well, that happens to us too. As Christians, we have people that do us evil, sometimes on purpose. That's hard to get over. It's also hard to return good for that. You know, that's, uh, that's a godly trait to return good. What is your first reaction when somebody does you evil? You want to do them evil right back, don't you? You want to see them go down. They were going to take you down, well, now I want to see you go down. Well, that, that, that's the first reaction you want to do. Is that how God wants us to react? No. He doesn't want us to react. He, he knows that's going to be our first impulse. But that's not how He wants us to react. He wants us to be that better, bigger person and react in a positive way that would set a good example for the person that did us evil. That's hard to do. If you can do that, you're a very big person and you do set a great example for others around and about you and especially for that uh, person. He, he makes this phrase in conjunction with that. The best way to get even with one who has wronged you is to pull him up to your level rather than to stoop down to his. And then, of course, in Romans, Paul said, recompense no man evil for evil. And Christ, when he was being crucified, Father, forgive him. They know not what they do. They were doing him evil on purpose. He knew. He, he had done no wrong. They were on purpose doing him evil. But yet, he said, I'm going to return good for evil. Of course, he knew what he was doing on the cross was the ultimate good and that mankind could be saved from his sins. And so he was willing to do that. Uh, Romans 12, 19 through 21. Turn to that one. If you're not in Romans 12 already. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be, uh, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Joseph did, wasn't it? He returned to good for evil. That's what God wants us to do as true Christians. He wants us to do that. If we do that, and that little last sentence down there is what we have. He said, Joseph's course brought him peace of mind and happiness. If we return good for evil, do we continually have to think about the evil that was done to us? We can get that out of our mind, can't we? You know, it's over with. I'm returning good for that. I've forgiven that person. And now I can have peace of mind. And we go back again to that little phrase over there about that person that's done you evil. Don't you think they're still thinking about that? Yeah. If they haven't asked forgiveness from you, and if you haven't offered them, uh, extended that forgiveness because of their request, then they're still thinking about what they did to you and thinking, that wasn't right. And they're going to continue to live with that and think that until uh, a change is made. Okay? Questions and comments up to this point? Uh, 
I'm sorry. In Exodus chapter 21, yeah. 24, where it talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Mm hmm. That changed completely in the New Testament. A lot of people like to go to that verse and say, well, we're justified. <clears throat> I just heard that used the other day on the radio. Somebody's talking about something. And eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Well, that was under what law? Old law, right? That was. That was under the old law. Of course, we don't live under that law anymore. We live under the new law. And, and the New Testament under the Christian age. And Christians are taught not to respond like that. Not to give an eye for an eye or tooth or tooth. And, 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 and don't, don't respond to people in the same manner they, respond, or they uh, did you harm in. You don't do that. Okay, you, you respond as a, a Christian would and return good for evil. And I'm glad you brought that up because it has changed. It, it really has changed. People want to say that's a contradiction in the Bible, but it's not. It's not a contradiction. That was at a time before. But we have a better law than the new law. And it's a totally different. We have a better law with better commandments. To, uh, with, I mean, better promises also, don't we? The commandments, you know, under the old law, if you do an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, you know, again, I said if somebody does you evil, your first response is do them evil back, right? Well, you know, that was accepted under the old law. You, you would do that. But the new law raised it up to a higher level. Christ raised things up. He said, I, you know, you'd heard it said like this, but here's the way I tell you. Here's, here's what I want you to do. So instead of returning evil for evil, he wants us to return good for evil. And of course, even Joseph in the Old Testament, although Joseph, you know, lived in the Old Testament, he still uh, did what he was supposed to do. Of course, Joseph lived before the Mosaic Law was given, but still, he did what even Christians are commanded to do today and uh, returned good for evil. Matter of fact, uh, I want to go back to that in Genesis. If you look... Um, at Genesis chapter 50 again. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for I am in the place of God. Now look at verses 20 and 21. Here's where he returns good for evil. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones, and he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Did he return good for evil? In that last verse, verse 21, the last one we read? Oh, yeah. yeah they, they feared the worst. They feared what, were, you know, what he was going to do to them, how he was going to punish them. Prison or death or whatever they were thinking in their minds. Whatever they might have done. That's what they were thinking. But he said no. I'm going to take care of you. You're here in Egypt now. You're not in your homeland. You're, you're here where I am. I'm in a place of power and I can do that. And I'm going. To, so that place of power offered him two choices, didn't it? He could have recompensed it. He could have done anything he wanted to. But he didn't. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. He did. You remember what's the song we sing? He could have called 10,000 angels. 
Just like that, right? You know, they were taunting him. Come down off the cross. Could he have come down off the cross? Anytime he wanted to. He could have come down off the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels. All that would have been done. He didn't have to do that. Is that not the epitome of love, though? And then Joseph showed it here, too. The epitome of love is having the power to do those kinds of things. Christ in particular, Joseph not saving himself, but Christ saving himself. He could have saved himself from all of that. But is that not the epitome of love that he had the power to stop it all, but because he knew that if I go through with this, this is mankind's salvation. All men will be saved, so I'm going to go through with it. I'm going to withhold all this power I have. I'm not going to take myself off the cross. I'm not going to bring angels down. I'm going to fulfill the Father's wishes, and I'm going to go through with this. And thus mankind... That's the epitome of love, is it not? The epitome of love. Now Joseph, he didn't do it to save himself, but he did not return evil for evil, did he? Again, that's love. Returning good for evil. Yes. Yep. No. Yeah. Joseph could look back over his life, and instead of dwelling on the bad things, what did he dwell on? God and the providence, right? All the things that had happened to him to fall out just the way they did. And you think about it in his life. For things to happen just the way they did, and for things to fall out just the way they did, had to be the hand of God in there. Not miraculous way, okay, except for the dream interpretation, I'd say. But the rest of that, natural consequences for the choices Joseph made to do what was right in every situation he found himself. And God took those situations and those natural consequences that occurred and elevated Joseph to where it was. And, and I, yeah, do I, Joseph could look back on that and see that, couldn't he? He could look back and say, you know, God meant this to be something total different. His brothers didn't have any of that in mind. They were just getting rid of him. You know, they, they, uh, finally, they decided not to kill him. They said, we'll just sell him. They were just getting rid of him. They wanted him out of their life, out of their way. They were tired of him. They were tired of the favoritism. They didn't want any of that. They were just tired of all that. Well, that little paragraph. Yeah. Don't you think they thought about that all the time? And even in the story, you know, when, when Joseph said, bring Benjamin. Did they want to bring Benjamin up there? <laughs> they didn't want to do that. They didn't. And they didn't want to bring Benjamin because they knew what they had done to Joseph. And if something happened to Benjamin, they knew their father couldn't handle it. You know. and, 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 and all those years, though, they never told their dad what happened, did they? No. They, and think about how that would eat at them. Continually. Just totally. Lies do that. They do. And you want to say justice, but God will deliver the justice. And God will deliver the justice. I'm, I've got my hearing aids in, but I still can't hear very well. You want to say justice, but we have to yeah. be patient and let God deliver that. That's the hard part. We want to see justice right now, don't we? We do. And, you know, I think... Uh, the government has a part to play in justice and, and rendering that justi justice now, 
okay? Definitely has a part to play in that. We personally, though, as Christians, we shouldn't have a part to play in that. We should let the government handle it the way it should be. And hopefully, if the government's doing its job, it handles it properly. That's a whole other discussion about whether we think the government's doing its job or not, which I will not get into today, okay? But if the government's doing its job, and criminals will fear the sword, they'll fear the government. If the government is upholding society in the way that it should and has the type of law society needs to have an orderly environment and that type of thing, then criminals won't feel like they can run free and do what they want to do because they know they'll have to pay for that. You know, they, uh, again, the Bible says uh, it doesn't render the sword in vain, the government, does it? Well, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be empty. Vain is empty. It shouldn't be empty. There, there should be some, some, some fear there uh, for wrongdoers uh, that, that, that the government's going to take care of things. Okay? Go ahead. That's right. That's right. And that's easy as long as something's happened to somebody else, isn't it? When something happens to you, we still got to do it. But that gets real hard, doesn't it? When it when it becomes personal, if something happens to you or to your family, or it it, it gets real hard then. Christianity gets hard then, you know. And when it, when it when it's something I've got to to forgive somebody for that happened to me or to my family member, and then I've got to be that big person, and I've got to return good for even and all that. That's when Christianity gets very difficult. And you've got to be, again, only a big person can do those type of things. Yes, but that, again, on the cross, he showed exactly what to do, didn't he? And, and we have an example to follow. Uh, and sometimes, again, Christianity is a, it's a way of life, isn't it? And it's a way we live and hopefully as we live life and as we have experiences, we grow and we get closer to God and we mature and hopefully we can start doing those type things He wants us to do in a better... Now, will we ever do it all perfectly? No. Nobody's ever going to do it perfectly. We're going to react in ways we shouldn't react and say things we shouldn't say and hurt people in ways we shouldn't hurt them. But yet, hopefully we grow and those things become a lesser and lesser part of our life and we become more like Christ and closer to God as we grow. We'll stop there.